Welcome to episode one of the second season of Thin Air, a podcast devoted to telling the stories of those who are missing, people who are gone, never to be seen again. In each case, we speak with those close to the missing person, attempting to come to a greater understanding of the circumstances related to the disappearance. Every case you hear on our show is an open case, unsolved. We hope that by sharing these stories, we can reach new people and help to create interest in old, sometimes forgotten stories. Since season one, lots has happened for Jordan and Daniel. Jordan, me, now lives and works in the Czech Republic on a Fulbright scholarship, teaching English and exploring Europe. I'll be here until the summer of 2017. Daniel graduated from Boise State University and now has a full-time job teaching high school English. While life has gotten somewhat crazy for both of us, we have still been pursuing our passion for telling these stories and making this podcast. Season two has been like a secret we've been anxiously waiting to share with you. So here it is, episode one. Hope you enjoy. She was found wandering the streets of Queens in sub-zero weather, wearing a red silk Afghan wedding outfit. She was barefoot at the time the ambulance picked her up. No money, no ID, no coat, no gloves. You could say that January 8th, 1994, was the day that Renee Lamana's mental health crisis could no longer be contained. The secret was out. Last seen running from her sister's home in Ocean City, New Jersey that winter night, Renee was in the midst of a breakdown caused by severe depression and the collapse of a 10-year relationship. January 8, 1994, was also the day that she went missing, a day that would mark the beginning of a mystery that still haunts her family and friends today, 22 years later. And for Renee, it was a day of heartache and confusion, Ultimately, it was a day Renee found herself adrift, and at every turn, systems designed to protect her failed her. Renee Lamana has been missing ever since. My name is Margaret Lamana, and I am Renee's sister. Since Renee went missing, no one has worked more tirelessly or selflessly than her sister, Margaret. The Lamana family, parents Frank and Anne, and their children, Margaret, the oldest, son Mark, and finally Renee, had always been close. Renee is my younger sister, and uh, she was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania. Our parents, now deceased, were Anne and Frank Lamana. We had a younger brother, Mark, a violin protege, who died of cancer at the age of 14. Uh, Renee graduated from Abington Heights High School in Park Summit, Pennsylvania, and the University of Scranton. Were you guys close? What was your relationship like? Very, very close. There were a few years between me and Renee. I'm older. And by the time uh, I was off to college, she was still in high school. Um, Renee was devastated by the death of my brother in 1967. We were all devastated. But she was very close to Mark. The Lamanas were a truly talented family, a family of doctors and academics, very ambitious, smart people. Renee was no exception. She holds three degrees, including a master's degree in history. Uh, She was a Fulbright finalist. She speaks five languages, including English, French, Arabic, Portuguese, and Farsi. 
Uh, Renee was a trainee in the U.S. Peace Corps in Morocco. She traveled internationally and immersed herself in learning about other cultures. Margaret described her sister as someone who wanted to help people throughout the world to have better lives. After the Peace Corps, Renee moved back to the States and ended up in the Fresh Meadows neighborhood of Queens, New York. Around the time Renee was 25, she met a man and fell in love. Then she fell in love with an Afghan taxi driver and a perpetual student, a Quadratula Robert Savory. They were both in night school. He was driving a cab by day and they were going to school at night, amassing additional degrees. He was getting a computer science degree. They were getting a nuclear medicine technology degree together. Um, as I said, perpetual students. And she was also teaching English as a second, second language and helping to assimilate his, his friends and families from overseas. Renee devoted herself to Robert. In the 10 years that they were together, Renee worked to change herself into someone he would want to marry, namely the perfect Muslim woman. She studied the Quran. Uh, she became vegan, learned to cook Afghan food, prayed five times a day, and wore a headscarf. This devotion took its toll on Renee, and she grew mentally, physically, and financially drained. Renee pawned her jewelry, gave all her money, and the money I was sending her for only her, to their cause. Most was sent overseas. I had no idea. During this time, Renee stayed in constant contact with her family, and for the most part, she seemed happy living her life with Robert. Other than a history of panic attacks, nothing indicated to Renee's family that anything was seriously wrong. My parents and Renee were in constant communication, even during the 10 years that she lived with Sabary. I was very busy with my medical career, um, and so I was not in constant communication with Renee physically, but we spoke multiple times every week. And she seemed to be doing great. Um, there was no indication that she was having a problem, except she did have a history of panic attacks. And that was probably um, dating to the late 80s. Um, she had been treated with norpramine with a very bad result, and she didn't want to have anything to do with medications or with with any treatment. So she went on about her successful way with, with, with no medications, but really no psychiatric history of note. As the years went on, Robert and Renee's relationship became strained, largely due to cultural differences and expectations that Renee never seemed to live up to. We have met him many, many times over the 10 years. Um, he was tall, handsome, articulate, educated, but we knew instantly that the cultural divide was too vast and that his desire for an ultra-skinny, you know, Afghan-speaking, vegan, you know, uh, Muslim woman could never be fulfilled by Renee. He told me that the women in their Afghan community were rarely, if ever, seen on the streets. They didn't even go to the mosque. They were purely domestic servants and partners. And that was antithetic to Renee, 
Renee's education and upbringing. Here is a brilliant, highly educated, multilingual, master degree Fulbright finalist who had traveled the world, who was in the Peace Corps, and she's now a domestic servant to a man who rarely wanted her out of the house, except to slip out in the evenings and attend one or two hours of night school. We found this extremely bizarre, and I wasn't too pleased about the 10-year relationship. I was very concerned. I knew it would end badly, but I had no idea how badly. As the years went on, the pressure Renee faced in her relationship took a toll on her. She had changed herself into someone she thought Robert would marry, but it began to appear that that day would never come. By fall of 1993, Renee seemed like a different person to everyone who knew her, but what they didn't know was that she was on the verge of complete mental collapse. She became, I saw her on Labor Day weekend, which was um, September of 1993, she and Robert came to the Jersey Shore. My mother, father, and friends and I had a big gathering. This was three months before her disappearance. She had been losing weight. I mean, if you look on her Facebook wall, facebook.com, Renee Lamana missing, or at Renee Lamana on Twitter, but look at her Facebook wall and look at her photos. She was very vibrant and very lively, and everybody described her as a sweet, soft-spoken, gentle angel. She loved bright colors like, you know, purple and teal, and um, she was just so full of life. She did flamingo dancing, and she was everyone's friend, and this was just, you know, she was not a reclusive person, and when he entered this relationship with her, he was so jealous of her. He didn't want her to go anywhere without him. He didn't want her to leave the house, and he wanted to totally possess her, which was alarming to me. Sometime between Labor Day of 1993 and January of 1994, when she goes missing, Renee suffers from what sounds like an extreme bout of depression, which left her in a near catatonic state. Margaret explained that her family had no idea. We later found out months after Renee's disappearance that Renee was housebound and bedridden for a month before her disappearance, that she was anorectic and profoundly depressed, that she was paranoid and heard voices, and that their relationship was crumbling during her severe depression. A neighbor later reported to my parents that she found Renee on the floor of their building laundry room, curled up rocking one day about six weeks before her disappearance. None of this, not one iota of this was ever revealed to me, to my mother or my father by the boyfriend that lived with Renee for 10 years. Renee's depressive episode culminated on January 8th, 1994, the day she went missing. According to Margaret, that morning, Robert ended their relationship for good, and Renee had a complete mental breakdown. Renee left their apartment in a daze. She was found wandering the streets of Queens on January 8th of 1994 after her boyfriend wanted to end their 10-year relationship. Um, she fled their apartment in fresh meadows in sub-zero weather 
wearing a red silk Afghan wedding outfit. She was taken by ambulance, called by a good Samaritan. She was barefoot at the time the ambulance picked her up with a flimsy silk pajama wedding outfit. No money, no ID, no coat, no gloves. It was a bitter cold day. This image of Renee, 98 pounds, wandering the streets of Queens in freezing weather, wearing only a thin red wedding dress, I find it so haunting. My heart just aches for her. And they took her to the psychiatric emergency room of Queens Hospital. I felt that there was substantial medical and psychiatric reason to hold her. After a brief a uh, brief evaluation by an intern. He said that he was not able to admit her, that he did not have a bed. Um, I demanded that the attending come and, and evaluate her. I begged him that he come and evaluate my sister, and he refused. So they released her, and they were going to send her out on the street with hospital-issue slippers in, in silk pajamas in her confused and disoriented state. When I first researched this story, this moment, where Renee is not admitted into psychiatric care despite clear evidence that she was in the midst of a mental breakdown, was so frustrating to me, so mind-boggling. And it was just the first failure of many that day. And in desperation, I asked a friend of mine to please pick up Renee in a taxi cab at the hospital. But during that unfortunate period of time, I had just arrived the day before from my home in Florida with resolving pneumonia, and I was quite weak and quite ill. Margaret, who was two and a half hours away from Queens in Ocean City, New Jersey, scrambles to find care for her sister after she's not admitted. Margaret, as a physician herself, knows that her sister needs immediate psychiatric care. She arranges for friends to pick Renee up and bring her from New York to Ocean City. It's hard to speculate what was going through Renee's mind on this trip, or if she even knew where she was going or what was happening. She arrived in Ocean City wearing a coat, a large white sweatshirt, the red silk pajamas, and hospital-issue slippers. Uh, She was catatonic and completely disoriented. After Renee arrived in Ocean City, Margaret had a plan. Get Renee to help as soon as possible. Margaret had a family friend named Paul at the house to help get Renee admitted into psychiatric care. I had two psychiatric emergency room crisis centers on standby. She had the hospital issue slippers and I gave her some socks to wear. And she said she was starving and that um, she wanted something to eat. So We got her something to eat. She twirled her fork around it. I asked Paul to get her a warm bath ready for her because I wanted to change her into some warmer clothes. And my plan was to kind of, you know, corner her and get her into the hospital with his help. Just when things appear to be settling down, Renee suddenly got up, ran to the door, and into the cold darkness. 40 minutes after her arrival at my home, She dashed out the door uh, at 7.01 p.m. into pitch darkness on the beach. Instantly, Margaret is on the phone. Every authority in Ocean City must have been there that night, searching for Renee. I called 911, the Coast Guard, and the Cape May County K-9 unit. 
Within minutes, the Ocean City Police Department was there with a patrol car, and I heard the Coast Guard helicopters overhead within minutes. And approximately a half an hour into this, the canine officer arrived with the bloodhound whiskey. And he had to smell to pick up Renee's scent. So he was smelling the coat that Renee had on and one of the hospital issue slippers that she had dropped. So he picked up the scent and the officer and the dog moved away from the beach. The Coast Guard was patrolling several helicopters up and down the beach. And one of the um, officers had a, a floodlight and we were looking for fingerprints on the sand to see if she had run right into the ocean and committed suicide because this was an oceanfront property. The bloodhound discovered the robe a block away on Central Avenue, away from the ocean. And the dog sat next to the robe right at the curb line. The search dog leads the investigation away from the ocean, making investigators believe that Renee got into a car. Instantly, Margaret demands that her sister is in serious trouble and that investigators stop all traffic off the island. Um, Back at the house with the Ocean City, New Jersey police, um, they were very cynical and very disbelieving of the urgency of Renee's endangered disappearance. Instead of looking for Renee, they rummaged through my house, my garage, my lingerie drawer, I told them Renee had a nervous breakdown, that she was mentally ill and that she needed help. The Ocean City Department said, uh, you know, she was a runaway in their eyes. They would not treat this as an endangered disappearance. Um, I begged them to stop all cars at the three island exits. But they said no, they needed a court order to to do that. Uh, And that is not the case, by the way. It was a very cold, dark, desolate evening with very little traffic. They would have stopped her exit off that desolate barrier island with one very simple maneuver, but they refused. But this wasn't the last time Renee was seen that night. I had read that she was seen at a bar. Do you know anything about that? yeah, Yeah, I know a lot about that. The canine officer was continuing to cover the area, and at 11.30 at night, He landed at the waterfront restaurant and was showing Renee's photo to the patrons. He went upstairs to the upstairs bar, and Dolores Beck, who knows our family, who knows Renee, said she was here tonight at 8.30. Dolores said Renee was distraught, and she appeared agitated. She was wearing an oversized white sweatshirt. She sat at the bar, ordered a drink, did not touch the drink, and left within 20 minutes. Dolores said she knew something was wrong with Renee, but she was too busy working at the time to intervene. She met with my parents several times thereafter, and she expressed sorrow and regret for not calling the police that night. Here we are in that ill-fated evening. Um, A doctor refuses to admit her when there was clear evidence of a psychiatric emergency. The police department refuses to admit that this is a psychiatric emergency. She's seen by someone who knows her 
in a distraught condition and 911 is not called. The Ocean City, New Jersey Police Department was relieved that Renee was off their island. Although I begged them, they did not send out television, radio, or police alerts that evening regarding Renee. They did not treat her as a high-risk, endangered missing person. We had to repeatedly request information from the waterfront restaurant. None of those requests were granted. There was no question that that this case was, was mishandled from the get-go. Since then, there have been at least three sightings of Renee in and around New York City. On December 22nd of 1994, nearly a year after her disappearance, Renee was seen in New York City exiting the number one train subway at the Chamber Street exit. A man named Jim Brex saw Renee staring intently at her flyer, which was taped to the south subway wall. He said she looked confused and agitated and disoriented. He got the impression that she didn't know that she was the person on the flyer, that she was trying to put it together. My parents jumped in the car immediately after he called the toll-free number. And they drove nonstop from Florida, and they're very certain that was, in fact, Renee. Five months later, in May of 1995, we get another phone call on the toll-free number 888-RENEE-11 from a Harry McCrickard. McCrickard said Renee asked him for a ride. When he said no, she offered to sell him a hairdryer for $20 so she could purchase a bus ticket to New York City. McCrickard said she was pretty disoriented. He described her as catatonic with a gaze that looked through him, not at him. He will never forget seeing Renee. After speaking to Margaret, one aspect of this case that stood out is how vigilant the Lamana family has been since day one. Though Renee's parents have both passed away since she went missing, Margaret has never stopped searching. Margaret has made sure that her sister's case doesn't leave public memory. I also contacted and interviewed each of these, clamoring for evidence. So you were basically, your family was basically the investigation, it sounds like. We were on it. We were totally, totally on this um, whole stop. Now, um... We spent 22 years looking for Renee. My parents suffered greatly. They died looking for her. We hired a retired FBI agent and multiple private investigators. We advertised, mailed, faxed, and hung thousands of flyers. We produced a video that aired nationally in the U.S. post offices. We visited homeless shelters undercover. We wrote to agencies emergency departments, hospitals, mental health clinics, politicians, celebrities, radio stations. Renee's story aired on Unsolved Mysteries and Crime Stoppers. We set up a toll-free number, 888-RENEE-11, and a reward. We contacted the National Alliance on Mental Illnesses, transit authorities, churches, mosques, libraries, bookstores, thrift stores, missions, soup kitchens, and we used social media and her story has gone viral on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Google+, Instagram, and Tumblr. 
So where is Renee? With all this media exposure, how is it possible that she hasn't been found? Margaret believes wholeheartedly that her sister is still alive. She doesn't know who she is. I, I must assume that, that she is in, you know, this psychiatric, prolonged psychiatric state. And with the amnesia and the paranoia, obviously she is schizophrenic-like. Now, Renee doesn't drink alcohol. She doesn't do drugs. She is, you know, a, a wonderful and highly educated woman. I must imagine that if she is homeless, that she is going to stand out. She doesn't know her name. Someone, one of your listeners, needs to look at her photos on her flyers, on her wall on Facebook, and hopefully recognize her because she will look, you know, as an age-progressed version of herself, or perhaps very close to me. In fact, someone thought that they did recognize Renee. In 2015, a woman named Ruth called the Lamana family's 888 tip line to report that she had seen a woman matching Renee's description while shopping in a Virginia supermarket. The woman was disheveled and aged from years on the streets. Ruth was convinced that this woman was Renee Lamana. On February 2nd of 2015, at 2.57 in the afternoon, I received a phone call. I saw your sister, and my heart jumped. Um, This was the voice of a woman named Ruth calling me from Rocky Mount, Virginia, telling me she had seen Renee. She explained that she spent four days with a homeless woman in October of 2014. Ruth had been on a four-month mission, frantically trying to identify the woman that she met. She explained that she had poured over missing persons websites. Ruth discovered NamUs MP1232 profile on Renee Lamana. Ruth knew this was the woman she saw. She immediately picked up the phone and she called me. And she sent me photos from this woman and her time in Virginia. We later received a mugshot, apparently of the same woman. Ruth's description of the profile of Renee and the, and the images was incredibly similar to my sister. But, but what really convinced us was that Ruth and her sister, Laura, told us repeatedly that this woman said her name was Renee Lamont or Renee Lehman and that she was looking for her family for a long time and that she couldn't understand why they can't find her and that she was trying to get to Florida. Images of the woman began to appear online, like her mugshot and pictures that Ruth took. The woman has thick black hair, a round, time-worn face, and is close to the same age Renee would be now. These photos, along with the information Ruth provided about the woman, made Margaret believe that this could be Renee. They started a massive search to find this mystery woman. On January 24th of 2016, just about a year after Ruth's call on February 2nd, I got a phone call from a Facebook observer in Osceola County in Kissimmee, Florida, 
I think I have this woman here. And I said, text me a photo. And it was, in fact, the same woman. I said, we'll be right there. And she said, um, I'm going to call the local police. I said, please do. So she got the policeman. The policeman got on the phone with me. We text flyers and photos back and forth. We got our lead detective uh, from the Cape May County Prosecutor's Office to uh, uh, ask the detective in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, in Osceola County, to hold this woman. And we went to meet her. I can just see Margaret traveling to the woman who could be Renee, what that must have felt like, especially after seeing her picture, that this could be it, the moment she had waited for for 22 years. So based on the picture of this woman, which looked like it could be Renee, based on the story, Renee Lamont, Renee Lehman, we believed Ruth Collins and Laura Manning meant well, uh, but the information was misleading because we later found out that this was not Renee and that this woman never said her name was Renee Lamont or Renee Lehman and that she never said she was looking for her family, that she was estranged from her family and never wished to speak to her family again and that she had no connection to Florida. So I think both of these Virginia women meant well, but somehow the details of the story got very distorted to our disadvantage. We met her, fingerprinted her, ID'd her, uh, helped her, continue to help her, talk to her several times a week. She's living with friends in New York, and she is looking for my sister. She has flyers of Renee Lamana, and she's wandering around looking for Renee. And we're in constant communication with her, and we absolutely love her. I mean, she's, she's a sweetheart. Despite this setback, Margaret has never given up hope that she will find her sister. Since 2013, Renee's case has a new lead detective who confirmed what Margaret knew to be true about her sister's case since the very beginning. Police and early investigators seriously mishandled Renee's disappearance. Renee had been missing since 1994, 19 years into Renee's disappearance. I received a phone call from the Cape May County Prosecutor's Office from a Detective Marshall Craddock, and he said, I have been assigned your sister's case. And he met with me in my New Jersey home. And I'll never forget the day I I met Detective Marshall Craddock. And I said, "Um, what do you think, Detective Craddock, about my sister's case? And he said, and I quote, this is one of the worst botched missing persons cases I have ever seen. Well, my heart sunk, but I knew that. He also told me there were many inquiries, many, many queries on her NCIC numbers in both New York and New Jersey, but no one had ever called us about that. So does that mean that people are searching for her specifically? It just means that um, if a law enforcement agency sees a five foot two inch white brown haired female 
um, that bears resemblance to Renee, they might inquire on her. We want to know about all of these potential matches because any of them could be Renee. And if they don't have the resources, we certainly will find the time and energy to track every single one of them down. So I, I deeply resent the fact that the family has been cut out Perhaps because of all these missed opportunities to both prevent and solve Renee's disappearance, Margaret has had to become incredibly well-informed, and in her continued search to find Renee, has become a powerful advocate for the missing and their families. HIPAA, according to Margaret, has been a major problem when it comes to finding information about her sister. Essentially, if Renee does show up in an emergency room, information about what happened is severely limited and cannot be shared to certain agencies without written permission. HIPAA is the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So Renee disappeared in 94. HIPAA was enacted in 96. This is a big roadblock to finding Renee because in the name of patient privacy, HIPAA can inappropriately restrict agencies from sharing critical information. If Renee's in an emergency room or, you know, in and out of a mental health clinic in the name of privacy, they can hide behind this legislation and not reach out to the family. I think it's a cop-out. I, th I think it's a, a total lack of common sense. Privacy really doesn't seem to be uh, you know, a psychiatric emergency should take precedence over a privacy law. In addition to HIPAA, Margaret argues that many investigative agencies aren't aware of many databases and other sources of information when it comes to missing people. Every state has a missing persons clearinghouse. Most of the officers do not know this and they do not know how to interact with their missing persons clearinghouse. They don't even know about the five federal databases. And even in jurisdictions that are familiar with the state and federal databases, some officials say they have neither the time nor the resources to enter missing persons data into the systems. And a major effort is needed to find ways to solve this problem to enter the information into the databases and to help solve these cases. Margaret is actively working to make changes to the way missing adults are handled in the U.S. and is trying to make the process easier so families are better informed and know what to expect from law enforcement. Believe it or not, in this country today, this year, you know, there is no uniform strategy for missing persons, for locating missing persons. There's no roadmap. And what I'm trying to do in my effort is to standardize this procedure so that every missing person gets a report filed. They have an NCIC number. The DNA is collected. There's, it's, it's put on CODIS. It's put on NamUs. All of these things need to be done. And the family needs to engage social media. They need to, you know, connect with missing persons pages, missing persons advocates. They need to do all the things that I've talked to you about today because it's really, really important. I think that we trusted that the police were going to find Renee. 
And if we knew then what we know now, we would have been even more aggressive in our pursuit than we've been. And we've been incredibly aggressive. It seems like the cops make assumptions about what the person was or what they were doing. And based on that initial assumption, so much is lost and it's never, you can never get it back again. It's deadly. That, that is, you know, labeling somebody as a runaway is, is deadly. You know, we have Amber alerts for children and we have silver alerts for, in some States for patients with dementia, but you know, between Amber and silver, we have this vast chasm of missing adults and we don't have a federalized alert system. We don't have a mentally impaired designation in place. And I think in many cases, missing adults are lost. We've had cases a lot like your sister's that there is just an assumption that they just took off and they made their own choice and especially in your sister's case, it's like she didn't have, I mean, she was in a bad way and she needed help and it was so denied to her and I'm so sorry. It's so tragic. It really is. My final question was about Robert, the man who Renee loved so dearly. I couldn't help but wonder what happened to him after Renee's disappearance and if he was ever questioned by police. He was totally interrogated completely interrogated, extensively interrogated. No, no, I spent the last week of June, my husband and I and members of Team Renee went to New York City and he drove us around. He chauffeured us around in his his taxi minivan. He married right after Renee's disappearance and had a baby girl. Um, He's on his third wife now and his second child. And you can see the pain in his eyes. He cried. He cried in the taxi. He said, the day Renee left, the day she disappeared is the worst day of his life. And he said he suffered for it ever since. His marriage was a disaster. His second marriage was a disaster. His father, who loved Renee so much, died. He said it was the most horrible mistake of his life. Honestly, I can't forgive him. I can't forgive him because even if he didn't understand depression, he said, I didn't know what was wrong with her. I didn't know what depression was. I don't buy that. I think you know if somebody is not right. And and one phone call, one phone call to my mother to me or to my father, none of this would have happened. Renee Martine Lamana has been missing since January 8, 1994, and there have been unconfirmed sightings of her near New York City. The family believes these sightings were genuine and were most likely Renee. Someone knows something, and Margaret is looking for any and all information. Uh, Renee disappeared at age 35 in 1994. She would be age 58 now. She does not know who she is. She has amnesia. She's paranoid and scared. She won't seek help for fear of hospitalization. There are no fingerprints on file, only my DNA, her dental chart, and photos. 
HIPAA is a major roadblock. We know that she spent the first 16 months in the vicinity of Summers Point, New Jersey, Northfield, New Jersey, and New York City. She was selling a hairdryer for $20 to buy a bus ticket to New York City when she was last seen in May of 95. She was distraught, disoriented, had no money or ID. Someone has information. 888-RENEE-11 is our toll-free tip line. We would like to thank Margaret Lamana for speaking with us about her sister, Renee. If you have any information, Margaret would prefer if you contact them directly. In addition to the 888-RENEE-11 number, which you can call anonymously, Renee has a Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Renee Lamana Missing. There is a reward for information that leads to Renee. Thank you for joining us for our season two premiere. We are so proud of the quality of our show. Daniel and I invest so much of our own time outside of full-time jobs into the research, interviews, editing, and creation of this podcast. If you would like to hear more and help us continue to find and tell the stories of the missing and their families, please consider making a donation at patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. Patreon.com is a website which allows fans to contribute directly to artists and help with production and costs, and so far has allowed us to buy a new microphone and recording software, upgrade our website, and much, much more. That's patreon.com forward slash thin air podcast. You can also check out our website at thinairpodcast.com for past episodes and cases, pictures and blogs about each case, and more information about Daniel and Jordan, the hosts of the very podcast you've been listening to. Thank you again, and we'll be back in two weeks with a brand new story. A large amount of the music you heard today in our podcast was created by our friends at Conifer Audio. If you are interested in original compositions or other audio services for your own podcast, drop them a line at coniferaudio at gmail.com. Additional music was provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find his music at chriszabriskie.com. Links are available on our website. We also use the song Beef by Blue Dot Sessions. Check them out at www.sessions.blue.